Shoot That podcast about organizing, solidarity, and the work of making change. This is our final episode of 2022, and I can't think of a better way to end the year than by concluding my ongoing conversation with my friend Tanuja Jagernoth about the practice of hope. This is the third and final installment in that series in which Tanuja has shared insights she has collected through conversations with activists and organizers who are out in the trenches, cultivating hope, experiencing heartbreak, grieving together, and finding ways forward. Our friend Miriam Kaba often says that hope is a discipline. This three-episode non-sequential series that Tanuja and I have put together began with a DM conversation about what hope as a discipline looks like for groups and organizers in practice. While a lot of us love the phrase, hope is a discipline, we both thought that people could use a bit more practical elaboration on that point. Before making what we thought would be a single episode, Tanuja wanted to gather insights from other activists and groups so that we could tell a bigger story. By the time she was done, Tanuja told me it would actually take three episodes to cover what she had learned. I thought that was amazing news. While the concept of hope is an incredibly maligned one in these times, it's also pretty sacred to me. I've seen what its absence can do to people, including me, and I have also seen determined people whose hopes were grounded in action and reciprocal care accomplish things I had previously believed were impossible. So speaking for myself, it's a topic I can't get enough of. But before we get into our deep dive on hope, I want to take a moment to honor some of the other things we may be feeling, because it all connects. I know that a lot of us are hurting right now. The holidays are a painful time for some of us, and as another year comes to a close, we are counting our losses yet again. We are hurting for the earth. We are hurting for each other and for ourselves. We are grieving for the people we have lost and are still losing to COVID-19. We are hurting because this thing called normalcy keeps trying to pull us forward in ways that render more and more of us disposable. Things were rough before the pandemic, but the new normal that is being thrust upon us is even more destructive for disabled people, migrants, imprisoned people, unhoused people, trans people, and so many others. And as each marginalized group gets thrown under the bus, nearly everyone is being pulled closer to the curb, whether they know it or not, because that's how the normalization of mass death, debilitation, and human disposal works. So if you're thinking, I don't know if I am ready to talk about hope right now, Kelly, I feel like shit. I get it. And I want to start by thanking you. I want to thank you for not shutting out the things that hurt. Because we all know it can be done. We've watched it happen, en masse. We have watched people normalize what they cannot bear or comprehend, incalculable losses that feel inevitable or that they simply cannot reconcile. People normalize the systems they depend on, 
And we have seen what it looks like when exhausted people who are longing for normalcy stop seeing the things they don't want to see and feeling the things they don't want to feel. When you haven't stopped feeling those things, seeing that disconnect happening all around feels nightmarish. There have been times when I have felt like I am living in a horror movie and some great evil is entrancing the world, making people indifferent to the death and destruction being visited upon us. And to be honest, there have been moments when I felt jealous of people who seemed to be experiencing that trance because I too desperately wanted to stop feeling the things I was feeling. Refusing to embrace the status quo comes at a cost. So I want to thank you for not giving up on us, for not forgetting other people, for not devaluing our fellow human beings, the earth, or the land, water, communities, and creatures that we cannot always protect. A lot of moments might feel more bearable, in an immediate sense, if we forgot how much those things matter or deemed our losses inevitable, or if we stopped asking ourselves what we owe to each other and to the earth. But in the long term, that kind of forgetting is damaging and deadly to others and to ourselves. If we allow the status quo to dictate what warrants grief, empathy, or outrage, we will not save each other or build radical reciprocal movements for collective survival. So thank you for continuing to care deeply, not only about injustice that affects you personally, but about what's happening to people on the other side of your city and on the other side of the country and on the other side of the world because that is where our work begins, and that is where hope begins, with giving a damn. That's why we bother to dream about what's possible. That's why we take risks and put ourselves on the line for other people. That's why we build unions, mutual aid projects, political campaigns, abolitionist news organizations, and so much more. We give a damn. So we put one foot in front of the other, and try to imagine what comes next. We cannot practice reciprocal care if we don't give a damn. And giving a damn hurts. So thank you, truly. I feel the weight of it all too. But where we choose to put that pain, whether it finds some communal expression or purpose or just lingers in the pit of our stomachs, I believe that these things have the power to affect the course of history. So thank you for that beginning and that possibility. This is a tough time of year, and I myself have to remember how to honor my feelings without being consumed by them or slipping into an emotional abyss. So for me, this is a great time for a deep dive on the practice of hope. I'm guessing I'm not alone in that. So I am inviting all of you to take a journey with us for the next hour or so. Unclench your jaw, relax your shoulders, and wherever you are in time and space, let's hold this moment together and see what possibilities that might yield. Tunisia Jagernoff is an activist, a healer, a playwright, and an educator. 
She is also the Just Culture and Operations Director at the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization. I am always grateful for her insights, and I am happy for us all that she's back today. Hey, Kelly, it's great to be back. Um, I, I really can't wait to share the final pieces of wisdom that the organizers I spoke with shared with me. And I really want to thank you, Kelly, for giving me a chance to really dig in with folks on what their practice of hope looks like. I've truly learned so much through the process, and I'm really grateful to have a sort of guide on what practicing hope can look like. And I hope that others, as they're listening to this, are recognizing things that they and their people already do. And for those who don't, I hope you're taking away some things that you can start to put into practice whenever you're ready. So I want to start off with really welcoming folks who are listening and inviting everybody who's listening to really meet themselves where they're at. We're all in a moment where we're witnessing continued and massively scaled and organized abandonment, to use the language of Ruth Wilson Gilmore and other abolitionists. And so every time we make the choice to demonstrate our care for ourselves and each other, we are demonstrating resistance. Any act of care, from my perspective, is a huge act of resistance, especially in the United States where we have a long legacy of extraction and transactional relationships. And so we're going to talk a little bit about this today in terms of what does reciprocal care look like. But the kind of care I'm talking about is care that's rooted in relationship, care that's rooted in consent, care that's rooted in awareness of power dynamics and that is mindful about maintaining each other's self-determination and bodily autonomy. And one of the things that I want to acknowledge, Kelly, is that the term hope itself, very much like healing or self-care or community, it can really bring up for folks a lot of complicated feelings because the ways in which terms like hope, healing, community have been co-opted, misused, and abused, right? They, they create a lot of confusion, I think, for all of us. And this is the result of capitalism, in my opinion, um, and the ways in which the healing and healthcare industries have kind of capitalized upon our own language, twisted it, sold it back to us. And so in these moments, I really appreciate the opportunity to like dig back in and remember sometimes our responses to these terms are actually a response to the commodification and the, the misuse of the terms. And I also want to say for anybody who is hearing the term hope, the practice of hope, and so on and so forth, if that is raising in you feelings of being kind of mandated to, to feel a certain type of way, I want to remind us again that the kind of hope that we're talking about is really rooted in action. It's really rooted in vision 
and focus. And so you can certainly go back to the first and the second episodes in this series, but just briefly, you know, we're not talking about a sort of toxic positivity form of hope. What we're talking about is the kind of hope that is rooted in our lives as survivors in oppressive systems. The pain that folks are feeling right now, it is absolutely valid and right. And no one, myself especially, is here to say, you know, erase your pain, right? Ignore your pain. That is absolutely not what I would ever want anyone to do. I'm a former acupuncturist, and the way that we view pain in traditional East Asian medicine is there's a saying, and the saying is, where there is flow, there is no pain. Where there is pain, there is no flow. Often pain, in other words, can indicate an obstruction. We live in a society that gives us nothing but obstacles. And so what I want us to do is, as always, acknowledge our pain, honor it, and really lean in and ask, what is the message coming to us from this pain? Our pain often is an indicator that we have a need, that a boundary is being crossed, that we might be overextending in certain ways. And it can also be an indicator that, yes, we are being violated. Our trust is being betrayed. We are experiencing what is known as moral injury on a daily basis, right? We're looking around and we're seeing the state absolutely abandon and harm and really just violate our sense of the common good on a daily basis. So your pain is right. Your pain is valid. And at the same time, we want to be able to take a pause and separate the pain we feel from our analyses. And something that I recently read from Rebecca Solnit is a reminder to not let our despair become our analysis. And I find that really helpful for myself. When I think about that and I think about despair and I think about, you know, those very real feelings of like, holy fucking shit, what are we going to do? I think about the Princess Bride, actually. And I think about the quicksand. I don't know if folks have seen this this movie, but, uh, you know, it's a really cute movie. Don't at me. But anyway, there's a part in The Princess Bride where the princess is kind of walking along and suddenly falls into quicksand. The hero has to then grab a vine and dive in after the princess to save her. And I really think about this quicksand when I think about despair. It's kind of like our acceptance of reality and our acceptance of the situation kind of goes a little extra and becomes like quicksand. We can easily fall into it if we're not careful. And so what gives us that solid ground that we can really rely on? That's our analysis. That's our community in my opinion, that's our, our ability to 
reflect to really honor where we're at and, you know, be deliberate in the things that we do and say in these moments while we're feeling all the things that we're feeling. I absolutely love the comparison between despair and the lightning sand in The Princess Bride. And as a child of the 80s, I am going to nerd out a little about why I love it. So the lightning sand, which is quicksand, is one of the three terrors of the fire swamp, which Princess Buttercup and her true love Wesley must navigate as part of their great escape. I love the quicksand as a metaphor for despair because we all know that sometimes we just have to feel our feelings because they're real. So sometimes we are in the fire swamp. That's just where we are and what's happening. And we are not going to feel great about that. And then bam, we step in quicksand. And instead of just being in a bad place, we are being consumed by that bad place. That is despair. I also like the comparison because the dialogue between Buttercup and Wesley and the Fire Swamp is a push-pull between hope and despair. After surviving her fall into the quicksand, Buttercup tells Wesley, We'll never succeed. We may as well die here. And I think many of us can relate to that feeling, even without a near-drowning and quicksand incident. Wesley responds by telling Buttercup, We have already succeeded because they know now how to avoid the quicksand and the random fire spurts of the swamp. He is then immediately attacked by a giant fire-breathing rat. Sometimes that's what trying to cultivate hope feels like from one moment to the next. You take one step forward, two steps back, and now a giant rat is trying to eat your fucking arm. But we keep fighting, just like Wesley fought that unusually large rodent. Because the things we want are worth fighting for, no matter how bleak or impossible things may seem. But navigating disaster isn't always a choice between hope and despair. As we have seen during the pandemic, denial and avoidance are extremely common reactions to catastrophe and injustice. In a 2016 interview in the Chicago Reader, Writer and human rights activist Jamie Calvin voiced concerns that the bleak political landscape of the Trump era could lead people to lead more insular, apolitical lives. He said, There was a term used in Central Europe to describe those who opted to retreat into private life under totalitarianism. They were called internal emigres. That is certainly tempting at a time like this, to live one's life in the holy private realm, enjoying the company of friends, good food and drink, the pleasures of literature and music, and so on. Privileged sectors of our society are already heavily skewed that way. It's a real danger at a time like this. If we withdraw from public engagement now, we aid and abet that which we deplore. Sound familiar? I think there are different strains of this phenomenon, and one is definitely the system-justifying behavior of people who are continuing to reenact normalcy, no matter how many lives are being lost in the margins. As Calvin says, things were already skewed that way among some people. 
the capitalist trance and cooperative death march that prevent us from waging collective responses that are commensurate with the injustices of the climate crisis, policing, and more, are essential to the system's survival. The ruling class needs us to isolate ourselves and to be consumed by our own stories, rather than seeing ourselves as part of a larger story. I wasn't kidding at the top of the show when I thanked you all for continuing to feel the things that hurt. We don't want to hurt 24-7, and we don't want to be consumed by our hurt, but we know we can't shut these things out. I completely relate to the impulse to go inward and to kind of self-protect because there's so much to process all the time. And, you know, that is valid and right. And at the same time, going back to traditional East Asian medicine, you know, there's a yin and a yang to everything that we do. Going inward can be excessive at a certain point. And so what I've been finding helpful right now is giving myself that time that I do need to, you know, go inward, do what I need to do, self-regulate, right? Manage my triggers, get the rest that I need. And I'm so grateful that I'm actually in a position right now financially where I, I can rest. Kelly, there was a time in my life where I was working, you know, four plus jobs just to make ends meet. Shout out to 2019, never going back there again. But, you know, now what I do find myself doing is taking that time to really rest, reflect, get my head right, talk to the people that help me to process. I use various tools. I have a super handy anti-anxiety notebook Shout out to my former therapist um, who pointed me in that direction. You know, use my tools and then I really listen, right? And when I feel like I'm, I'm back in a place where I can get back out there and, you know, reach out to folks, check in with folks, keep the mutual aid project moving, right? Then I jump back in. Sometimes, yes, we don't have the luxury of spending too much time in our in our cozy little nerd cave but i would recommend you know when you really do feel yourself being overwhelmed and when you notice your your thoughts and your words and your actions contributing more sort of harm in spaces right that's the moment to take a to take a step back and actually one of the things that the organizer shared with me when I talked to them was the necessity really to take that step out. Christina Tendia shared with me her reflection that when people don't take the time to take a step back, they really can bring harm into our spaces and our organizations. Nikki McKinney also mentioned that we really need to be good at giving folks the opportunity to tap out when they need to. Elsa Heltner affirms that as well. One of the things that helps Elsa and, and her group is there's a good group of them. So they have enough people. If one person needs to tap out, 
that doesn't mean that the entire operation shuts down. And so, you know, this kind of raises the notion of, you know, kind of resourcing yourself with enough folks when you're working on something so that folks really can take a, a break. It also raises the notion of really like delegating tasks, being able to do that and cross-training everybody on the things that you do so that, you know, maybe you've got resources written, you've got protocols written down, or you've just spent time doing things with other people. So they know kind of how to keep things running if and when someone has to take that pause. And in my own life, in my own experience, that has been kind of the, the thing that I did not do. And that was one of the pieces that was a downfall for the former project that I was working on. So don't do what I did, y'all. Like, make sure you've got enough people working with you. Make sure folks know how to keep things running so that we really can give each other the grace and the opportunity to tap out when you need to and then tap back in. All of that resonates so much. As someone who has been organizing for a long time now, it's pretty easy for me to discern in retrospect that most of my shittier moments, when I really wasn't living my values, or failed to consider someone else's feelings, or just plain missed the point, have happened when I was exhausted, overworked, and overwhelmed. To be clear, those aren't excuses to be shitty with other people. But for me, they are warning signs that I am at a greater risk of being shitty to other people. And I have to be accountable to that awareness. Those feelings, on a protracted basis, mean that I am not okay. And while we all push through fatigue and discomfort sometimes, the more I allow myself to fray, the more likely I am to have moments when I am not my best self. I am guessing some of you can relate to that because I have heard time after time from activists over the years, in the wake of some misstep, that they were just too mentally and physically exhausted to show up right in the moment when everything went wrong. We are so accustomed to forcing a performance out of ourselves because that's what capitalism demands, or because it's an emergency, that we sometimes forget what it is that we are building. We don't work for movements. We constitute movements. That means if I am uncared for or overworked in a way that's becoming injurious to me, on a long enough timeline, the resulting damage is going to extend beyond me. In some way or another, that harm will happen. To be clear, I am not advocating for what some people would call self-care. Because I hate that framing but rather the understanding that my well-being is not some optional concern that can exist outside of the things I build or the relationships that I maintain. I am not separate. The system isolates people, works them to death, and disposes of them, deeming some people less worthy of food, space, and survival than others. We have to break that cycle, not reenact it in the name of a cause. Our needs as human beings matter. 
one need that I think has gone unmet for a lot of us in these times is the need to grieve in collectivity. Our grief has sometimes brought us together in protest or at memorials, but the ratio of loss to memorialization over the last few years is staggering. The ruling class does not want us to pause to process the severity of our losses, who is being sacrificed, or why. They don't want us to dwell on the enormity of our losses because if we did, a lot more people would be fed up and laying down demands. I do think a lot of us are grieving. We are grieving not just personal losses, but we're grieving the sense of a collective agreement that may have been there consciously or unconsciously as we see the evidence continuously of, you know, this organized abandonment, right? We're grieving this sense of you know, what we would have hoped was there. And that grief is right and that grief is real. And I also want us to keep in our minds the words of Cindy Milstein, who wrote in Rebellious Morning, quote, our grief, our feelings as words or actions, images or practices can open up cracks in the wall of the system. It can also pry open spaces of contestation and reconstruction, intervulnerability and strength, empathy and solidarity. It can discomfort the stories told from above that would have us believe we aren't human or deserving of life-affirming lives, or for that matter, life-affirming deaths, unquote. Part of our resistance right now is to give each other these life-affirming lives and when we can, the life-affirming deaths. And, you know, to the extent that it's accessible to you, you know, I would invite us all to consider to reach out to each other and share these moments of grief. We really have wonderful tools available to us now for how to hold these spaces. I've talked about the clearing circle from Shira Hassan and Mariam Kaba in their book, Fumbling Towards Repair. The Clearing Circle is such a wonderful tool, and it's just one of many tools that, that folks can use. Team up with somebody who's a skilled facilitator, co-facilitate this space, and I, you know, I would really recommend and invite us to you know, hold space for this grief. It really does require us to take a chance on being maybe a little more vulnerable than we may be used to. And also, right, we don't want to miss the opportunity to kind of tap our collective grief. Just going to briefly interrupt us with your weekly reminder that Truthout is a nonprofit news organization that only exists because of listeners and readers like you. If you keep track of the independent news landscape, you know that we have lost some great publications in recent months and years. Journalists are facing layoffs across the industry. Here at Truthout, we are still hanging on, but I am not going to lie to you all. 
it is a struggle. The media landscape has been engineered to wipe out anything that isn't owned by the very people who are screwing us all over. Corporate algorithms are hurting us, but we are still here providing award-winning news and analysis that I believe helps to fuel and uplift our movements. Truthout has not laid anyone off during the pandemic. We are a union shop and we have the best family and sick leave policies in the industry. So if you think all of that is worth fighting for, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today. Or maybe even become a sustainer, because truth be told, those people are the reason we are still here. Thanks so much, and back to the show. So we know that we don't want transactional relationships or to drain people like batteries. But we also know that the work we are talking about can be draining. So how do organizers find a balance? How do we maintain our relationships and our practice of hope? But one of the things that the organizers I spoke to talked about was sustaining our struggle, sustaining our practice of hope. And I really wanted to share some of their key takeaways, but they really have made me think about, you know, how do we bring our practice of healing and abolition home? How do we practice deep and reciprocal relationships as resistance to our culture of transactionalism and extraction. So one of the things that I'm taking away from these conversations with folks is we need to take the long view first. Elsa Heltner reminds us that if you're doing cultural work, we need to remember that it's going to take time. Elsa says, quote, there's nothing easy about this. And you know, there's a reason why it hasn't been done already, unquote. So Elsa works in the theater industry and is organizing for equitable pay for artists. And this, this work really requires Elsa to um, have laser focus on the narratives that are being kind of perpetuated by the industry and folks that work in the industry. And so Elsa really hones in on what people are saying and makes sure that she's distinguishing between, you know, when people are speaking to scarcity model or if they're kind of speaking from a place of, you know, experience and hope and transformation. But she does acknowledge it's really hard to turn this off. So Elsa takes the long view as she does her work. The organizers reminded me that we do need to also remember seasonality in our work. We have seasons of activity that range from fall, winter, spring, and summer. And it is okay to be in a season that may feel out of sync with what the expectations are. In organizing often and in activism, I feel like we expect each other, we expect ourselves to constantly be in, you know, summer season or 
even like early fall when we're, you know, expansive, when we're highly active, when we're producing a lot of stuff, you know, but we also inherently have winter as well. Our bodies want that rest. Our minds want and need that rest. We're collectively going into winter, right? And so this is actually a really great time to really embrace winter. Embrace winter as a season, but embrace winter as a practice as well. So we can take this time to go inward a little bit and we can take this time to reflect, look back and really, you know, track what we've done thus far and vision, right? What do we want to do moving forward? This is also a really good time to do the groundwork. The Hope Praxis Collective pointed out in my interview with them, you know, the groundwork is such a key component of the work that we all do. You know, they noted that in the summer of 2020, when we saw, you know, massive collective uprisings, those seemed super spontaneous, but they were actually built on years of organizing and years of doing what they call, quote unquote, unglamorous trucking along. And so they noted the groundwork is a really huge part of making movements happen. And what they do is, you know, they, they actually build us into their daily practice. They think about, okay, what is the groundwork that really needs to be happening today and continuously? And they acknowledge, right, the groundwork stuff, it's not flashy, but it really is the work that is needed to, to keep our, our, our groups going and our work going. And so winter is a beautiful time to really lean into that work, doing that slow, quiet, less visible work. And it can look like a lot of different things, but some things that come to mind and that I've heard about and practiced myself is, you know, one-on-ones. Winter during a slow time is a great time to do one-on-one conversations where you're really just checking in with folks. You know, you can call them relational interviews, but it's just a time to get human with each other, right? Do something that each of you enjoy doing and get to know people on a, on a human level beyond the work that you do. I know a lot of folks who are really good at this, and I appreciate them because it reminds me why we do this work in the first place, right? During a time of winter and a time of slowdown, we can practice popular education. We can skill share with one another. We can ask each other, hey, what did you learn this year that is really sticking with you? Do you want to share anything about that with us? You know, how can we use this thing that you've learned this year in our work next year? This is a time for, you know, planting seeds with our loved ones, right? Having those conversations, spending that time. There's so much wonderful literature coming out right now that speaks to just the basics of abolition and what the visions for abolition are. And so we can share those beautiful offerings with our friends and loved ones and just make those connections, plant those seeds on a slightly like less exciting note, but equally important. You know, we can also reach back out to folks who may have fallen away this year. You know, we've been talking about folks really doing their best to navigate emotions 
and pain and people are really processing a lot. And, you know, people may have fallen away from their mutual aid work and other work because they really just are overwhelmed. And so this could be a great moment to, you know, reach out to folks you haven't heard from in a while and, you know, just drop that like friendly meme and how are you? And, you know, let me know if you want to do a Zoom chat or, you know, take a walk or whatever it might be. And then I, I, I am a big fan, you know, of just reflecting, looking back and checking back in with my values. I learned this practice and really started practicing it in 2020 when it was almost mandatory to take that pause. All of the jobs that I was working on actually stopped. And I'm lucky enough that I got a different full-time job, but that pause of being able to sit with everything was so important. And in that pause, I was able to just really assess and say, okay, time out, right? What are the values that I want to uphold moving forward? And then what are the practices that I really need to let go? right? What are the ways in which I have been participating in transactional relationships? What are the ways in which I've been actually participating in exploitation of myself and potentially others, right? Letting that go. But I couldn't have done that without that opportunity to just pause and really reflect. And so, you know, we can take that time in the winter. We can give each other that time in the winter to do that kind of like values check-in and realignment. One of the gifts of working in organizations and mutual aid formations is that our groups can be windows and they can be mirrors. They can be places where we gain insight into others and the world. They can also be places where we see ourselves reflected back at us and we have a choice in how we respond to what we see. I would really invite us to, you know, anything that we see reflected back at us, you know, whether it's uncomfortable, unflattering, et cetera, like we really like take it and receive it and spend some time with it and interrogate it. And I think the winter during a slowdown is a great time to do that. And you don't have to do this in isolation, right? You can find a buddy or a couple buddies that you have, you know, you built trust and built a relationship with. And, you know, this is a time to, to like work on our stuff. And again, going back to the clearing circle from Shira Hassan and fumbling towards repair, like the clearing circle is a beautiful model for doing that kind of reflection. The concept of seasonality has been so important to my own work. When I interviewed Carlos Saavedra, who is the founder of the Aini Institute for Let This Radicalize You, which is a book I co-authored with Miriam Kava that will be out in May of 2023, he emphasized the importance of taking care of your people in winter. That really resonated with me. I think a lot of folks who experience burnout only feel seen when their labor is being requested. I've described this phenomenon as feeling like a 911 operator. Everything's an emergency. Sometimes what we are working on 
is an emergency. And we do not get to build with people as lovingly or intentionally as we might like. But in these periods when I am not in emergency mode, when there's time to plan, to heal, to learn new skills, to revamp old safety plans, we have to continue to invest deeply in one another and the projects we hope will blossom in the spring. As we've emphasized in recent episodes, these are great times for study groups. We should ask ourselves, what issues are we grappling with? What knowledge could help us? What books can we read and discuss together to start formulating our next moves? This is a great time to learn together. And if we are thinking deeply about ideas like collective care, words that were given to us by disability justice organizers, then we should be reading books like Care Work and The Future is Disabled and discussing them together. I also think this is a great time for pop culture discussion groups. I would love to get in a group with people to talk about Andor or Severance and maybe do some shared reading about the ideas invoked in those television shows, which are radical as hell and could send us down all kinds of wonderful rabbit holes. I also love Tanusha's advice about reaching out to people who may have fallen away from the work. Maintaining that human connection outside of any expectations about productivity is crucial. Because ultimately, it's not just what we do together that matters, but also how we do it. In the conversations that I was able to have with organizers, they really speak to a quote that I've, I read in As We Have Always Done by Leanne Beta Samosake Simpson. Leanne writes, quote, It became clear to me that how we live, how we organize, how we engage in the world, the process not only frames the outcome, it is the transformation. How molds and then gives birth to the present. The how changes us. How is the theoretical intervention. Engaging in deep and reciprocal indigeneity is a transformative act because it fundamentally changes the modes of production of our lives. It changes the relationships that house our bodies and our thinking. It changes how we conceptualize nationhood. Indigenous intelligence systems set up, maintain, and regenerate the neural pathways for Indigenous living both inside our bodies and the web of connections that structure our nationhood outside our bodies. Engagement changes us because it constructs a different world within which we live. We live fused to land in a vital way. If we want to create a different future, we need to live a different present. So that present can fully marinate, influence, and create different futurities. And what I take away from this quote and from the conversations with the organizers I spoke to is, you know, we are inviting each other into a different way of living. And through that different way of living, we will and are creating the next world.
there is another small excerpt from As We Have Always Done that I think is worth considering as we end the year. The passage comes from the book's introduction. It reads, This is a manifesto to create networks of reciprocal resurgent movements with other humans and non-humans, radically imagining their ways out of domination, who are not afraid to let those imaginings destroy the pillars of settler colonialism. This is my beginning. This is my radical, resurgent present. I wanted to share those words because they give me hope. And because I think they describe so many of the ways that we are working to keep each other alive and get free. In our last episode, I talked with Shira Hassan about liberatory harm reduction. And I think this is a time to take lessons from communities including indigenous communities, disabled people, black people, and criminalized communities, including sex workers and people who use criminalized substances, about how people have been imagining their way out of danger in defiance of their domination for generations. The traditions and lessons of liberatory harm reduction will help us build forward in this moment just as the Black Southern traditions of healing justice and the reciprocal practices of so many Indigenous communities can help us build forward, if we are willing to learn. To face what's ahead, we need to cast off all notions of respectability and think about what it means to be rebellious thinkers who refuse to leave each other behind in catastrophic times. I know a lot of people who are concerned about reproductive justice are inspired by the Janes, for example. But they are just one important example in a much larger lineage of shared knowledge, reciprocal care, and solidarity, which is why everyone should get a copy of Saving Our Own Lives by Shira Hassan. One of the things that I really want to lift up from the conversations I had was just the necessity of harm reduction, liberatory harm reduction, and meeting each other where we're at. And I'm not going to go too much into the definition of liberatory harm reduction, as Shira Hassan was just on Movement Memos. So I really recommend that folks check that episode out. But I want to lift up, you know, two key parts of liberatory harm reduction. One liberatory harm reductionists support each other and our communities without judgment, stigma, or coercion. We do not force others to change. Secondly, liberatory harm reduction is true self-determination and total body autonomy. I feel like we're in a moment where we are invited and welcome to pivot towards this kind of practice with each other and with ourselves. And one of the things that Christina Tendia shared with me was, you know, her belief that everyone brings a superpower. And this is a, a different form of liberatory harm reduction, in my view. For Christina, finding that superpower allows us to honor and affirm different kinds of leadership. So Christina really spoke to the aunties, right? The aunties in our communities and in our formations. And, you know, the aunties, don't have to be biological aunties, right? These are folks that do a lot of the care work behind the scenes. They feed people. They support people's emotional care. Oftentimes, they are 
providing childcare or they're providing rides, right? That is a form of leadership. That is a form of reciprocal care. We want to honor the folks who are doing that labor and, you know, meet each other in that, in that strength. It's a really beautiful thing when we have folks like that in our, in our midst. For Julie Kempner, meeting folks where they're at takes a fair amount of intuition. And Julie does her best to gently find out what people need. And so sometimes she says to people, I don't know what would help you right now. Can you tell me if you know? And if I can, I will try and provide it. And one of the things that Julie does is she sits quietly with people and she'll offer folks options. So do they need a walk? Do they need some support to have a difficult conversation with someone that they need to have? Julie noted that there are just so many ways to support someone through a crisis, but the most important thing, even if folks are not going through a crisis, it's to validate folks' feelings no matter what they're feeling. Julie does her best to not question why folks feel the way they feel, right? Julie makes an effort to not make others compare their pain to anyone else's by saying stuff like, well, so-and-so has it worse, right? What Julie does do is she reminds folks very gently that the feelings they have can change. Those feelings probably will change over time and they may return again, right? That's the nature of healing. Healing as we know, it's not linear. And so when these feelings come back again, that's okay, and we will address them. Another thing that Julie really relies on is a teaching that comes from Buddhism, and that is that our feelings, while valid, are not facts. And so Julie encourages folks to take a step back, breathe, grieve, allow, right? Watch the feelings go by, and they will. That is really hard to believe when you're in the moment, but I can also attest to the fact that, you know, this, this really is true. And, you know, Julie says, quote, I've had to do that minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, and it's changed me in terms of how I approach healing, unquote. And this practice of, you know, allowing not treating feelings as factual. Julie says it's made her more patient with folks who are also in deep despair and in deep crisis. Um, so this is a practice that we can think about using for ourselves and with each other. Another thing I want people to think about as we close the year or whenever you happen to hear this episode, is what you have gotten right. I mentioned at the top of the show that we tend to count our losses at the year's end. That's natural, and that commemoration is important. But I also want us to think about how memory works, and that the scary and painful stuff imprints itself much more easily than the good. The moments when you held on to your values, even though it was hard, the moments when you helped someone who might have been afraid, in trouble, or even desperate. The moments when you felt joy, 
and shared that joy with others. The moments when you won. In a cruel twist of neurochemistry, those moments are harder to hold on to. Sometimes, when I am experiencing something I know is going to help sustain me later, I try so hard to memorize it. Because I know those things are harder to keep. So I am big on commemorating the good times, as well as the bad. During the winter, during a slowdown is also a time, folks, to celebrate our wins. The organizers that I spoke to, many of them mentioned celebrating our wins as a key practice in maintaining hope and maintaining our struggle. And actually, Hope Praxis Collective, they're rooted in Milwaukee, but they credit Chicago with teaching them the importance for celebrating wins and victories. And so, you know, they noted in our conversation, our, our struggles are so intimately connected. And so, you know, when um, one group in one town is doing celebration and demonstrating that, just notice Others are watching and hopefully taking that invitation to do the same. If you're kind of thinking, well, it's been a shit year. I have no wins. I would kind of pause and say you actually have more wins than you think. A win does not have to look the way that we might traditionally think of it, right? A win is not always, you know, shutting XYZ down or, you know, doing the blockade. Those are wonderful wins. But a win can be something as simple as getting folks to talk. This is coming from Elsa Hiltner. For Elsa, who's working in the theater industry, getting folks to hopefully come to a consensus around the issue of pay equity for artists, getting folks to even name that pay equity is a problem, that's a huge win, right? So in the theater industry, there's a lot of silence around the exploitation of artists. And so just breaking that silence is a huge win. And I have a strong feeling that for anyone who's listening right now, like any difficult conversation that you've had this year, no matter how it turned out, consider that a win, right? Getting folks to talk to each other is a huge win. Julie Kempner shared an example from her life. She has a cousin that she's in a tough relationship with. And this is a cousin that she certainly could have walked away from many, many times, but she stayed committed to their relationship. And through their conversation and sustained connection, one day, Julie's cousin um, shared with her that their conversations enabled her cousin to actually have a conversation with one of their parents. And that was really healing for them. And the cousin shared that, you know, their, their relationship helps to open their mind and reevaluate how they wanted to be in the world. And, you know, this is part of our healing work. This is part of our community building and our abolition work. This is part of bringing our healing and abolition home. So, you know, I want us to really consider those moments wins, right? And we need to make the time to celebrate them. So once again, you can celebrate them with yourself. 
you can celebrate them with others. But, you know, the lesson that I took away from my conversations with the organizers I spoke to was we must celebrate our wins of any size. And then finally, you know, we're living through a time right now where we're hearing a lot of conversation about the end of the world, right? I'm hearing and seeing, you know, the term Armageddon a lot. And, you know, for all of us, it can really conjure very specific things, some some things that are rooted in specific, you know, religions and so on and so forth. But, you know, in reading Rehearsals for Living, I am so grateful to Robin Maynard and Leanne Beta Samasake Simpson, who say, hold up, wait a minute. When we are talking about the end of the world, which world are we talking about ending? Whose world are we talking about? And they really got me to think about the fact that if what we're talking about is the death and decay of capitalism, that's actually a great opportunity. And that's the beginning of the next world. And so you know, when I started to think about that, you know, I can see signs of that next world sprouting and coming to fruition already. And so in my conversations with the organizers and in reading Rehearsals for Living, you know, one of the biggest takeaways is, you know, like, we're here because Black, Brown, and Indigenous folks are ancestors they have gone through world-ending experiences time and time again, and they have continued to build and rebuild their world. So many of us, as Miriam Kaba and Andrea Ritchie point out in their book, No More Police, we are survivors, and our movements are populated by people who have known violence and oppression intimately forever and you know we're here because they created strategies to stay safe you know we talked about the practice of liberatory harm reduction right liberatory harm reduction was created by black and brown and indigenous sex workers and drug users and we have this practice because of their ingenuity and so we're actually resourced with with the tools and the skills and the people and the knowledge to survive a key takeaway for me from the conversations i had with the organizers and from so many beautiful things that i've been able to read in preparation for this this podcast interview was you know just the question how do we practice a politics of refusal as we are bringing our healing and our abolition home. Dr. Alexis Pauline Gum, who is a poet and a scholar, asks, what does it look like to be intolerant of colonialism? What life would spring up? What recovery is possible if the colonial force actually shuts down? I think this is a great time to ask, what if? What if is one of the key questions that artists ask themselves when they sit down in front of a blank page, right? You know, what if we were living in a time beyond police, beyond prisons, right? What would that look like? What would that smell like? 
In a previous episode, I referenced Christiana Ray Colon's world-building exercise, right? We are in a moment where we can absolutely, you know, say during a winter pause in our work, really get together and do this kind of what-if visioning, right? Let's take ourselves through the senses in terms of the next world that we are building. Because, you know, the thing that I am so reminded of is that we're not done becoming, even during this time of crisis. Yes, there is fear. Yes, there is despair. And also, we can displace it, right, with each other, with our practices, and we can take on a learning and curious stance. Maxine Hong Kingston says, in a time of destruction, create something, right? In that phrase, I, I absolutely hear refusal, right? So we can say, yes, all of this is happening. And also, in practicing a politics of refusal, I'm going to create something beautiful that stands in stark contrast to everything that I'm seeing. And a really beautiful example, Kelly, is an event that you're organizing where we're going to be sharing carols outside of a juvenile detention center. For me, it's events like that that really, one, prefigure the world in which we want to live, but then also practice this politics of abject refusal for the cruelty and the pain created by keeping children in cages. So often, in times of crisis, we tend to be handed a script, right? We are assigned a role. And it's not a role that we auditioned for. It's not a role that we chose. And so in practicing a politics of refusal in this moment, we can ask ourselves, you know, how am I going to hand back this script? Or how am I going to rewrite this script? Or how am I going to just get the fuck off the stage and create my own piece of wild resistance art? Robin Maynard wrote, quote, I learned from Ojere Lutalo, who spent 28 years in a New Jersey state prison, that we are our own liberators. We have to define our own reality, unquote. She and Leanne Beta Samasake Simpson ask, how do we demand an alternative timeline? And in their book, Rehearsals for Living, they, they paraphrase Dion Brand, asks, how do we change the air, right? How do we change the very air that we breathe? How do we refuse the sort of crumbs of change, the illusions of progress, right? The bullshit DEI statement that doesn't mean anything in actual practice and actually demand a change to the way things operate in our daily lives. How do we change the air? And so I take a lot of inspiration from all of this. And for me, you know, this is part of the practice of hope is, you know, taking questions like this and taking a moment to, yes, acknowledge the pain. Yes, acknowledge, you know, the feelings of confusion. And at the same time, let it be as we pivot toward what we want to create with ourselves and, and each other. So in closing, I just really want to thank everybody for, you know, joining in this exploration of what the practice of hope 
looks like. And I want to leave us just with, you know, these questions of, you know, what future are we all going to be rehearsing every single day through our daily actions? And how are we going to continue bringing our healing and our abolition work home? And I'd like to offer this excerpt from Asada Shakur's poem, Affirmation. I believe in living. I believe in birth. I believe in the sweat of love and in the fire of truth. And I believe that a lost ship steered by tired, seasick sailors can still be guided home to port. Thank you. That poem always chokes me up because I believe in those things too. I also believe in the power of words and reading has been as important to my practice of hope as anything I have done over the last few years. So I would also like to close with some words of poetry, words that I think fit the moment as we enter a new year. And her poem, Call, Krista Franklin wrote, Artists, writers, intellectuals, inventors. Tina Turner already told you, we don't need another hero. We don't need to know the way home. Make a new home, a 21st century vision, a future image. Get up from the banquet table of the feast of American madness. Wipe your mouth and turn the entire table over. Grab the hand of the person next to you and make a break for it. French kiss the idea of humanity. If you find your imagination cannot stop itself from turning out the scripts of the death machines, pull its plug, dismantle it, reprogram it, dream daylight, manufacture daylight. We are the magicians. Make magic. I want to thank Tanisha Jagranoff for joining me in this journey and this exploration of the practice of hope. I also want to thank everyone who Tanisha spoke with for this project. It's an amazing collection of folks, and you can learn more about them and where to find their work in the show notes of this episode on our website at truthout.org. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And remember, our best defense against cynicism is to do good and to remember that the good we do matters. Until next time, I'll see you in the streets. Thank you for listening to Movement Memos. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Truth Out, and Truth Out's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without listeners and readers like you. We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, except for fundraising appeals like this one. So if you can and would like to support our work, 
please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today.